Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're on episode 15 and we take a minor detour away from the common theme of previous episodes to talk to Professor Dave Newell about conspiracy, dogma and belief within our respective professions, osteopathy and chiropractic. Dave holds positions of Professor of Integrated Musculoskeletal Healthcare and Director of Research at AECC University College, as well as Senior Research Fellow at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Southampton. Dave graduated from Plymouth University with a PhD in molecular biology in 1986. The last 30 years have been spent teaching and generating research in chiropractic institutions internationally, holding the position of research director in two other chiropractic programs in the UK and abroad. Dave has published extensively in areas relevant to muscular conditions in general and the chiropractic profession in particular. His contemporary interests and expertise include patient reported outcomes, service provision research, and the role of contextual factors in the therapeutic encounter. Dave is a fellow podcaster and is one of the hosts of the I Care Chirocast, which is an international podcast discussion with influencers and leaders in the chiropractic profession. So in this episode, we talk about the continued tension between evidence-based practice and the practice of osteopathy and chiropractic, the importance of critical thinking, scientific reasoning, and how evidence is either misinterpreted or overinterpreted in conspiracy thinking. We talk about the role of dogma within osteopathy and chiropractic, and the origins and spread of these traditional dogmas, and their appeal to modern-day clinicians and students. We discuss the continued challenge and pursuit of professional identity for both professions, and the barriers and facilitators to developing a progressive and contemporary epistemology of practice. And finally, we go into the anti-vaccination views within chiropractic, osteopathy and CAM more generally. As you'll hear, Dave and I could have spoken all afternoon. And if it wasn't for the hottest day of the year in the UK, we probably would have continued well into the evening. So if you're not an osteopath or chiropractor, there's plenty in this episode for you. Dave has a real breadth and depth to knowledge, which will have value for all critically minded clinicians. So I bring you Professor Dave Newell. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's um, it's somewhat unusual to be on the other side of the of the mic, I guess. To this time, you know, we have our own podcast, so um, yeah, no, it's great, and uh, hopefully, I won't rant too much. So um, I'm sure you can edit it out if you do. You've been hand selected for your meeting. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to move it off Facebook onto a different medium. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. <laughs> So for those that don't know, you maybe just introduce yourself and your academic and kind of intellectual background. Sure. So I I did a degree in molecular biology back in 82, a uh, long time ago. So I was absolutely fascinated with the very small stuff in biology. And I, I ended up teaching biochemistry and cell biology for quite a long time. And I, I used to say to my students, when you start to get a handle on on the mechanisms we understand about how the cell works, you are literally staring into the face of God. 
and I would I would I would say that in front of lectures, but um, not them knowing that I was a confirmed atheist at that particular time. But I think it's as close as you're going to get. So I was really fascinated with that, and still fascinated with all of that sort of stuff. But I came into teaching in chiropractic with the old Anglo European Chiropractic College in in Bournemouth back in 87, 88, I think I I first started there. I was there 10 years teaching the basic sciences and, and I started to do a bit of research and then I ended up going to Australia and I was over there for a very short time at Macquarie University in the chiropractic course and uh, as a director of research came back, I was director of research at McChimney for seven years, maybe not seven, maybe six uh, and then um, I came back to the ACC, and I've seen it through the last mm, 2007, so 13 years, through to its university status now as ACC University College. And I'm director of research there, and I've got a, a few completely undeserved gongs, I guess, from the profession. There's a mm -hmm. few letters after my name, but I'm proud to belong to you know Royal College and British Chiropractic Association and. Uh, as a as a, a member or an honorary fellow, and I'm I'm also at the University of Southampton two days a week. So I'm three days a week at the ACT University College, two days a week at Southampton, and I've been really lucky to have a considerable amount of funding for those two days a week over a five year period from the Chiropractic Research Council. So yeah, that's that's how I got here. Really, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Mm. Uh, like 35 years compressed into a few sentences. <laughs> Congratulations, you're full blown. Prof now. Well, yeah, full, yeah, um, yeah. I guess so. I, I think it comes by dint of just uh, surviving to a certain age, and 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 then and then becoming more and more confused, and you fit this uh, you fit this mold that looks like a professor, and then somebody gives you the title. So uh, we know each other, of course, from we've had some. I guess we're colleagues, I suppose. Yeah. Seeing as we we share the same kind of muddy puddles of osteopathy and chiropractic, yep. and. They're not huge circles. And I suppose that would probably be a good time to put a qualifier in. So at least I don't lose my job and your career doesn't descend quicker than you would like. <laughs> exactly. That uh, this is, this is uh, you know, the reason why we're speaking is because we're, we're hopefully going to touch on some uncomfortable or challenging issues which face both osteopathy and chiropractic in relation to evidence and knowledge and various things which are currently going on uh, both in the news in relation to the pandemic and vaccines that kind of stuff and have a bit of a critical conversation about those issues but also to just to say that at least for me and i'm sure i'm speaking for you that we are making or we're in no way being derogatory to either of those or our respective professions at least the one that you're now adopted by and that this is really in the spirit of trying to understand what's going on and maybe highlighting some of the issues that are present and yeah how we can move forward i think yeah absolutely i i i'm i'm a great devotee of another podcast called um making sense by a guy called sam harris yeah. um and uh, he he is a super smart guy much smarter than me by several orders of magnitude and and he talks to other super smart people who are again several orders of magnitude much smarter than i am um and uh, he ranges across from uh, you know, uh, mechanisms of consciousness to social issues, to political issues, and so on and so forth. And it's a fascinating... And religious issues, of course, is, you know, being an atheist or a new atheist. And yes, of course, and religious issues. He wrote a book around, he wrote a book, book on that. And he recently had a bunch of podcasts, or one very controversial one, where he talked to 
some guy was looking at the genetics of mean differences between yeah. groups, uh, ethnic groups, which is a really hot topic. And, and I don't think he or most of us listeners necessarily agreed with his guest's views or necessarily interpreted the research this guy did in the same sort of way. But the point that uh, Sam made was that we cannot close down conversations. If you can't have a conversation about something, you cannot move forward. And uh, and so so just because and, and now we have things like, uh, you know, the super woke, you know, and um, I forget what it is, cultural shutdowns or where you can't say something on Twitter without losing your job if it's interpreted wrong. You know, I think it, that there is a point at which that sort of level of fear to, to be able to have conversations yeah. becomes really damaging to society. And I'm not saying that we're, we're supporting, you know, the wider society in our conversation here, but it's got some elements there that's important. And I think we should be able to, able to have conversations yeah. and they should be polite and they should be informed. And, uh, and I think it's important to do that. Otherwise we, we all, die in the dark yeah yeah no, I, I completely agree and and so i hope that is a, a cloak of protection for our careers so let, let's start, i think just to, to set the scene and, and that so obviously your, your background and you're not a clinician but you've been pretty much embedded no. within chiropractic as you said for a few decades now right yeah a few decades yeah so pretty much you're a clinician i mean i'm, I'm sure you could fake it as a chiropractor for a week in clinical practice or certainly I mean, you'll know the ins and outs. It doesn't look that difficult to do. I mean, come on, you know. Uh, you know, you go in there and uh, and tell a good story and slap somebody around the back. I mean, it's clearly can't be much more than that. No, I'm joking, clearly. Um, I think there's a distinction to be made if we're truthful around... It's very easy for an academic like me to... And I've been accused of this many times, to, to, to sort of sit in ivory towers critiquing. And I think, you know, you, what's that saying? You, you have to spend a year walking in somebody's shoes before you really understand what's going on. And I haven't done that. You know, I've been a patient. Mm. Uh, I've certainly observed quite a lot of uh, clinical encounters. But there's something very different, I think, about being the person that a patient comes in to see and there being that responsibility and expectation of the, of the patient's the weight of that on the clinician. Mm. And and I would say that I I don't have that. And I and I and I'm not prepared to, you know, I'm not prepared outside of scientific critique of claims to say that I have much experience of that. So so I, I know a lot about how the profession ticks. I think I know a little bit about how osteopathy yeah. ticks, you know more than that. I think we both complement each other on on knowing quite a bit about both professions. And I think the the cultural aspects certainly are up for grabs. And I, I've I've lived I've lived in this profession for a long time. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm I'm not a clinician, and I really respect clinicians in in the ability to be able to do that because in the end they're mm. at the coal phase, as it were, and they have to deal with very difficult situations. Yeah. So it's you know you have to be careful about how critical you are standing standing in your nice clean ivory yeah. tower and not having to deal with the the mess of the person. Yeah. And of course, it's an easy accusation that can be leveled at you. Well, you're not a clinician, you have no idea. And like you said, as you articulated, to some extent, having that insider knowledge or experience offers something, but in no way does not being a clinician completely eradicate any validity of your views that you do have. So so I think um, it's it, it's a stick that can be you know, bashed at you quite easily, but isn't probably always fair, I think. It's been bashed, it's been bashed, yeah, it's true. 
<laughs> so in terms of why we're talking about osteopathy and chiropractic, and I do hope that other listeners from other I suppose MSK professions find this helpful, and, and, and I'm imagining that some of the issues might certainly translate or transfer to to physiotherapy or other maybe CAM professions. I was just trying to try and set some boundaries about why we're talking about osteopathy and chiropractic. Firstly, it's because I'm an osteopath and you come from a chiropractic academic background, so that's the obvious point. But I think the second thing is that, as I was saying before, is that those two professions, I know you don't like the expression or phrase CAM, but I'm going to use it anyway. I've got no other term to describe them. But they belong to a at least a social understanding of healthcare called CAM, Complementary Service Medicine, and yet, yet they sit alongside healthcare professions and allied healthcare professions, both from a public point of view, i.e. they are reasonably mainstream, pretty popular, quite a few professionals doing osteopathy and doing chiropractic, high levels of patient satisfaction, we are regulated by law, but by statute, at least in the UK and also throughout the world. And in many instances, private medical insurance or healthcare insurance will refund treatment from those two respective professions. So by all accounts, we're a credible healthcare profession based on uh, those facts. However, I suppose when you look at the knowledge base and you look at the epistemology, if you like, if you look at the sorts of claims being made by the respective professions, they do differ quite significantly in in some res- in many respects, but of course the practices don't in terms of manual therapy. So that's a really interesting observation that in many ways they're, they're standard healthcare professions and, and, and display the attributes of, of many others, but yet they have quite different philosophical, theoretical and epistemological backgrounds, a different body of knowledge. And so that's why we're picking on those two. That's a very long way to justify that choice. Yeah, you're right. I don't like CAM. Um, I, I know that there's not much of a choice, as you said, to describe them. I, I actually wrote a short paper with George Lewis a few years ago now, talking about orthodoxy and CAM. And and, and we we compared the sort of manual therapeutics certainly the the uh, professions that manipulate and that included you know a large band of physiotherapists now in in the in the uk Mm. osteopaths and chiropractors and we looked a little bit about you know the sorts of things that they you know they do you know if you're looking at the mainstream parts of the profession and that's another conversation we have because we do have various tribes in our professions but if you're looking at perhaps the majority of the profession it's sort of like a normal distribution, I guess. And I think most people bunch up in the middle somewhere between, you know, out and out extremism, you know, uh, uh, perhaps I would say vitalism in its strongest sense is, is one of the areas perhaps at one end of the spectrum. And then perhaps sort of, you know, fascist like EBM. I'm not quite sure what that would be, mm-hmm. but, but something else at the other end of the spectrum. But I think most people that yeah. sit in the middle, they deliver treatments that are broadly in line with most of the guidelines around the sorts of things they treat which is low back pain neck pain shoulder pain so on and um so why is it that for example osteopathy and chiropractic are considered to be cam and yet physio is is considered to be sort of mainstream medicine so i i there's lots of there's lots of odd points there where there's there's no consistency Mm. Um, and, you know, I think 
we were talking before Tim mentioned said, you know, there's the, the, the alternative and complementary medicine that has evidence for its efficacy is just called medicine. And, mm-hmm. and we could talk about the, the arbitrariness of the, of, the, of the terms medicine and, uh, you know, they're all made up words that historically come down to describe a certain thing. And of course, medicine 120 years ago was as, in some ways, as, as complementary, as alternative, if you like, as it would be looked in comparison to what it is now. Mm. Um, so, I think um, I think there are some there are some discussions to have around whether these terms really are representative of what's going on. Yeah. But yeah. So so I, I guess I guess we are sort of stuck with. I mean, complementary is better to me. Alternative really doesn't work for me because you know if it, what's an alternative to an efficacious intervention? Uh, well, a non yeah. A not efficacious one, perhaps. But, but I think, yeah, but I think, so as you said, that, that in many cases, osteopaths and chiropractors will be delivering kind of guideline-orientated care for neck pain, shoulder pain, back pain, etc. And so if that is the case, why are they not just called physiotherapy or something like that? If, if, that, if, if that's all that was needed to then begin to establish or describe profession so there's something else so there's something different about the re- there's a reason i mean obviously there are various political reasons and then and historical reasons but i would say that there are different so you said why alternatives not a, a good phrase you know that that's not appropriate but in many cases osteopathy and chiropractic or at least with osteopathy they do have alternative theories to kind of wellness or or illness, or the development of back pain, and these are alternative in many cases to the evidence-based view. And I can pick an easy target, and and it's it, it's probably unfair, but it's it's just too easy not to mention. At least within osteopathy, is that you've got theories about movement of the bones of the skull and the ability to palpate the pituitary gland through the the head and the scalp, and and to be able to affect that gland, as well as detecting erroneous secretions from that gland and that that's an alternative theory to how that whole system works it's, it is it's quite alternative yeah. and and yes i picked i picked a blinder there I mean, I, and there are gradations of of bizarreness in, in terms of theories and you know the chiropractors will have their, their own but so i think it and this is the this is to, to some extent the tension i think that for many clinicians though those alternative theories they're not alternative. These are the primary theories by which they're operating, and they're important to them for their professional identity as well as their as well as guiding their clinical practice. And and so I think that's maybe in some cases there are alternative views of health and disease and therapy, if you like. Yeah. Hence, why in many cases they might you know, scam or the alternative part might be entirely appropriate. I would agree with that. I think those theories are alternative. I mean, I, d- I don't think there, there are any, you know, if you'd have talked to somebody 100 years ago about receptor binding, I don't think that would be any less bizarre than mm-hmm. in the context of the time than, than some of these ones here. So they, they are alternative. I would say, yes, but what if they're wrong? That's the problem. So, so you know, if we are saying that CAM is an appropriate label to label these things by, and the reason that we label them like this is because these theories are, are somewhat out with of perhaps some of the 
uh, explanatory frameworks that you might get in medicine, such as you know germ theory or, or molecular binding, or you know some of the stuff we know about cell, you know a whole bunch of things that we might know. And yet, if those theories are wrong, is that what you want to base the description of a profession on? So, so I would say yes. The, the, this is where we are historically in the way that we describe mm -hmm. these. But those explanatory frameworks may just end up not being how it actually works. And what we've done yeah. is we've inherited a sort of longitudinal set of stories which are being consolidated into yeah. an alternative way of thinking about what's going on. But it may not actually be yeah. what's going on. Yeah, but, but I think it's – yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's the situation where patients benefit from implausible treatments, right, that, that the mechanism is incorrect, but yet the outcome Precisely. You know, is, is to be effective. Mm. But I think for many – and I – probably should not say for many but for some clinicians the story does matter like it does matter that you that you're able to palpate the pituitary gland and that it does matter that you can palpate you know the the deep fascia of some part of the body and affect that that tissue that yeah. that the non-specificity is not enough like it needs to be specific because part of that specificity gives credibility it gives you know professional shape and identity and so i suppose you said we've inherited a set of stories you know those stories persist don't they and and there are generations still there'll be people after us handing those stories down and so maybe say something about how these stories we've inherited them fine that was that was that's not our fault no <laughs> but we can do something with yeah. them and, and in many cases they're not they're being preserved i think yeah. that's what i'm saying they're yeah. told again so so i heard something really if i could try and remember it tradition is a fire that should be taken forward not a worshipping of the ashes that are left it's lovely um and uh, i i think you know in many ways i think there is this dichotomy between or this perceived dichotomy of the fact that we either we either dump the past and embrace the future or we hang on to the past and and we cannot let it change mm. and and of course those two things are completely un, un unlikely and unreal and are not necessary you know evolution happens by stages and 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 we come to know things better and in more detail and so on so we we don't have to you know and i think if you have a story about what you think it is that's going on that underlies the therapeutic that the, the visible therapeutic outcomes that, that have been shown and are in guidelines if if you have that story that articulates that and it's not not the story, then science says that you have to think about a different explanatory framework. So I, I do completely understand that it's important. I would say though that the if you're standing on the ground that is falling away from underneath you, which may happen as more and more science emerges to explain what actually is going on then no matter how you may feel about that as being a sort of immovable definition of who you think you are in your profession, either you move or you fall. And I, I, my impression is it's certainly within the manual therapeutic professions. There is, a, and, and in the chiropractic literature, there's been many papers that have talked about multiple crossroads. We're at another crossroad, we're at another crossroad. There's many crossroads that we've been at. But it does feel very much now that there is an emerging science around how these things m might work, that they're not necessarily really 
um, supporting some of the very traditional ideas, and that one must try to disengage your description of a profession from these sort of traditional ideas. And, and the, the one of the analogies I use is if you invest all of your money in one stock, it's a very fragile situation to be in. If you invest your entire professional description in one modality, it's a very fragile place to be. Mm. And not not only is it maybe not true, but it's also if if science comes mm. up to say that isn't working, then then where else have you got to go? Um, so I yeah. don't think you. I can see it's very important to people, but we have to look at what is, not what we want it to be. And and I think we're going to mm. have to start to articulate different ways of how our, our yeah. professions are unique and why they're important and why they work and why they should be more available. But I don't think that needs for us to stick to tradition in order to attain those things. Mm. And that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, it's certainly it's an educational challenge that if you strip away the curriculum based on some metric of evidence-based practice or plausibility or even utility you're left with a pretty empty curriculum, aren't you? You're left, you know, what do you tell, what, there's that feeling of walking to a lecture theatre with just empty slides or maybe just the first slide of your name and your title and the module name. But what do you teach? And so I guess it's also there is a, either maybe it's the inability of the professions to to reconstruct frameworks or theories based on evidence and hence why practitioners cling on to these these traditions or these dated ideas. And pass them down, and and I suppose it's that. I mean, I, I maybe I, th I think a less charitable view. When I see some of these these theories or these kind of dogmas from osteopathy still being kind of passed around on Facebook, they're not presented in in a way that the person promoting them is saying. I mean, they're pretty enthusiastic to share these these theories. You know, they're not thinking, "Oh, I've just got nothing else to share. This is the best I've got." It's not as conciliatory as that. It's more, "This is it. This is the way it is." This is this is what our profession was built on, and it's most likely true and the best way to practice. I mean, there's a confidence there. I think that so you know it's not, and I totally get the position when people might say, you know, I just don't really know, you know, what's going on with my patients. But this is perhaps the best theory that we've got at the moment, and I accept it's not you know necessarily supported by evidence, all that kind of stuff. There isn't it, often. It's not that. It's it's a much more confident position this is the way it is this is this is what's going on and, and that to me suggests maybe it isn't that they're just a there's a bit of a personal conundrum within them they're not quite sure how to, to practice but rather the, this even if a better theory did come along they'd still stick to the traditional theory i think is what i'm saying yeah there's so we've done some research looking at both students and well actually students and we've, we've got a paper just submitted that looking at this phenomena across a number of different continents and there, there is this thing, this cognitive dissonance between when you ask students whether they want to be evidence-based and uh, some primary primary contact practitioners. They, I think it's up in the 80s. Every, you know, a younger generation wants to have that legitimacy. They want to belong to that club. And yet, you know, 70 to 80 percent of them think that tradition is worthwhile hanging on to. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real dissonance there. And, and this, yeah. thing comes, this comes out from students from Australia, you know, in Europe, in the US, you know, it's a, it's a very consistent thing. And, uh, and actually, uh, if you break the, the figures down a little bit more, 
the the amount of cognitive dissonance seems to be associated with with particular schools and and these particular schools would predominantly be on the more traditional or the more evidence base of the spectrum and so we get mm. less dissonance with chiropractors uh, students who are educated with medics for example which there are a couple of schools like that certainly in europe and we get more dis more dissonance in the sort of middle schools and and then you know we've got the more vitalistic schools we get yeah. less dissonance because they don't want to be EVM and mm. they're, they're all on the sort of you know the traditional viewpoints so there is a real conundrum there in terms of trying to understand what is going on but i mean that's your cake and eat it thing but again i the reason that dichotomy exists is because there is an assumption that that there is no alternative to either a traditional uh, viewpoint or a progressive viewpoint. And you have to jump ship between, you know, you either be, be on this ship or, or that ship. Yeah. And, and actually, there's there's another thing as well. So I was brought, I was brought up in a Pentecostal church. So I was, I was, you know, quite happy, clappy, religious sort of kid. And I've known, I know what it's like to be in that situation. And, 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 you know, when you find that people who become converted, they don't become converted through an intellectual persuasion. They fall in love with an idea. Mm. And then trying to sort of leverage this, you know, it becomes who they are. Trying to leverage this idea away from the description of themselves is a bit like, you know, saying to one of your children, you know, when they're going for their first girlfriend, you know, that, that you disapprove of, well, I don't think she's really good for you. You know, you, you haven't got a, a, a hope in hell mm. of doing that because, and, and it doesn't matter how much intellectual evidence yeah. you give, the person has, this, so there's this sort of falling in love sort of, I know this is a somewhat uh, pejorative term, but a sort of pseudo religiosity. Mm. to to some of the ways that some parts of both of our professions align yeah. themselves to these ideas. Yeah, I mean, a really good example, and this is, I mean, there are there are very clear examples of this if you, you just spend five minutes in some of the Facebook forums that people ask themselves, what would A.T. Steele do, who was the founder of osteopathy? You know, what would he do with this patient? I mean, this is a guy that was around, and I'm going to get this wrong, 130, 140 years ago, and people are trying to imagine what would he do with this patient. There are people basing their practice of their care of people who are suffering on what someone would have done from 130 years ago and what they would do now, or even reciting his words, I mean, almost verbatim, you remember what A.T. still says. Mm. And I think you're right, there is something religion-like there. And I think also, as you alluded to, is that these theories are are immensely tied to identity and a sense of self. And there is something about people embodying these theories in their clinical practice that they can they're literally walking in the shoes of A.T. Stillwall Palmer. And that's for, for some that's that's crucial. And that's part and that's crucial because partly that's why they came and that's why they chose to sign up to the Cairo degree or osteo degree and not the physio degree. That and then that brings us on to another question about the sorts of students that are enrolling into these programs, the R programs. And I'm and imagining you'll find it's a different demographic now, younger school leavers. But back in the day they were much more alternative. These are people that were rejected orthodox medicine. 
and intentionally pursued a career in alternative theories of healthcare. And so you can see why some of that positioning, you know, is, is there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, even myself, you know, the reason I, I had a, I got an offer to do a postdoctoral uh, degree or postdoctoral position in the Bronx, in the Albert Einstein uh, University um, in the Bronx, on on cilia, on the little hairs that beat hmm. with with the guy that actually discovered cilia. And I look back at that and I think, what was I thinking to come into chiropractic? But no, I'm joking. But, hmm. but I thoroughly enjoyed my career. But one of the reasons I was attracted to going into teaching chiropractic was because I was a bit of a rebel, you know. And uh, I, you hmm. know, I was I was very interested in the the fringes of knowledge really because there was always that possibility that it may be the next wave into the next arena of knowledge and uh, there was always that's your, that's your religious up, your, your religious upbringing there well quite, you know, quite just drawn towards quite possibly quite possibly um and um so i i think you're right i think that back in the day that's you know people came into chiropractic because they see it as a calling a literally a calling and mm. You know, this idea of what would AT do? Well, you, you know, these are very religious phrases. You know, in, in, in my church, it was, you know, I was taught, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? And I, mm. you know, I'm, I'm not dissing anybody here. That was, just, that was just my personal experience. So very similar phrases. So I think there is, a, there is this religiosity. And so it's very difficult, I think, for if you imbue your entire identity as a person with this profession, with this calling, then, you know, asking somebody to step away from that to this different description is not just a, where we would see that as a, as a matter of, you know, intellectual critique. You know, well, where is, where is this the, the truth likely to be? Well, it's over here. So clearly I'm going to move in that direction. And so this is a, this is a very human psychology type of thing going on. And to be fair, you know, these sorts of approaches amongst thousands of clinicians that have gone before produced fantastic clinicians who who were the, you know who would be who were totally devoted to their patients and totally devoted to these ideas and so there's no you know i wouldn't dare to critique that commitment but i think that's a different story to okay well we've got a profession who's very committed and it has these traditional ideas now science comes along and the profession wants to use science to understand what they're doing. Now we're having a different conversation. If you mm. want to use science to find out what you're doing, then you're going to have to accept the idea that you will need to change as evidence emerges. Yeah. And uh, if you don't want to do that, then don't use science, in which case then yeah. you, you're with other professions that are probably not yeah. regulated professions. Quite, and it's it's more than just using science to understand, but it's using science to actually shape what you do do. Yeah, I mean, science has that power, if you like. You can take and give with the with the same hand, and recognizing the the limitations of EBM and quantitative research and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so so it's interesting about about the sorts of students uh, that end up being clinicians of chiropractic and osteopathy, and that they're already primed, if you like, to some extent to reject more contemporary evidence-based ideas. The disposition of those students already are to be somewhat suspicious of orthodox yeah. medicine and that the minute something big 
fat and orthodox comes along, like vaccination, it just kind of lands on their on their laptop or their practice. The default reaction is, ooh, you know, not that's not me, you know, big pharma, all that kind of stuff. So I thought this is a rather unelegant segue into the yeah. current climate, which I've seen on on certainly my social media stream, particularly with the potential of a COVID vaccine emerging. And now, and it's been even prior to the pandemic, there's been discussions in within osteopathy and individuals posting very st- strong anti-vaccination views. And I think you've had a bit of interaction yourself on social media with, with your followers or... Yeah, well, I, yeah, I'm not sure anybody follows, um, but they, they certainly will pile in to enjoy the show sometimes. And uh, <laughs> the yeah, that, that idea of, about difference in students, I think, and it's not so much now. I, I think a lot of a lot of younger students yeah. now come in because they see this as a career, and, and that's great. I mean, yeah. I think that's a real move yeah. forward. It's a profession. It's a career. That's a career. This is a career. I like the idea of that. Let's go in that career direction. Um, uh, so that's great. But I, I think, you know, the, as you quite rightly pointed out, I think in the past, well, there's two things going on. One, students are often sent by clinicians so you, who are already out there. So you seed the same ideas in, in the students that are coming through and, and, and yeah. maintain that same rhetoric going through with the same uh, explanatory frameworks and so on. And, and that leads to an anchoring through time of, of these these ideas that have become immovable in many ways because you just keep seeding it in the next generation. Mm. And often education doesn't really change that. They come out, you know, they'll do the education bit and go out the other end with the same ideas they did coming in. Um, and they, they won't really miss it. So that's a really, just to pause here, that's a really interesting observation there where students who you've you've interacted with for four or five years and you, you they leave there and you know, the, the point of graduation, you're just standing there super proud, thinking, you know, I've contributed to the development of this. You're critically aware, the self-aware clinician with a whole range of kind of expertise. And you see them a year or two later, how are things getting on, and they've signed up to, you know, one year long course of how to palpate the tentorum cerebelli or the pituitary gland. And you ask them, kind of what went what you're asking yourself what went wrong there how is it that the student has ended up down that alley which is it's, an, it's another conversation is about a lack of perhaps mentorship or or as we said of uh usable frameworks to guide clinical practice and it's quite easy yeah. to, to yeah, fall yeah. back into the dogma with promises of yeah. mechanisms and plausibility and all that kind of stuff yeah i think that's right i mean i think the one of the big problems that we have is that we don't have a very robust and consistent modern explanatory framework i mean i would say that i think we're moving towards one and i've you know i've, I've got some ideas about of myself as you probably have as well but, but again that's controversial that that particular explanatory framework is controversial and it's controversial in the much bigger world outside of camp than it than it's just in camp but um i so i think that's a really important thing you know in the absence of a strong identity a modern identity then you default to traditional mm. identities because they're strong mm. um, and 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 they're easy to understand. They they make sense, and even to the patients, they make sense. You know, yeah. if you you know, if you're going to move bones and you hear a crack, you know, yeah. as a patient, that presumably that's what you've done. It makes perfect sense yeah. to me. So, so there's that. I think that's a very important point. This idea, though, that the other reason that um, in the past, I think, and still to to some extent outside of the fact that students are being sent by clinicians who are carrying on the seeding of these traditional ideas, 
is that there are other groups or or they may have the same characteristics as well that are going into this as you quite rightly said because they're somewhat maverick they are mm. they're searchers they're they're interested again like i was in in the the, the fringes of knowledge because they're them they're be gold and um you know and and i think some of the thing that develops out of that over a time period then is as you as you exist on the fringes and you feel the disconcerting attacks or or disapproval from the mainstream you become more distant in a way mm. and i and i think that that's why those personalities are attracted to this sort of thing but then they naturally can gravitate to being anti-orthodox because mm. they then they feel that they've been unfairly attacked they feel that their ideas are part of their identity mm. so this becomes very personal and i think you then move that up the spectrum of some of these issues and you get to rabid anti vaccination and you even get to mm. you know mad conspiracy theories about about mm. chemical trails being pumped out of planes you know and the mm. evidence is you look into the sky and you can see a trail and then they become sort of wrapped up in you know extreme right wing or left wing politics and and then you end up with this weird or in a runt in the mm. profession it's totally very extreme and i think mm. you know vaccination is a, is a, one of the examples of that extremity mm. Mm. and i think some of those alternative theories that students or new graduates are, are drawn towards or drawn to are on the face of it and i think this is the same with the anti vax position that on the face of it they're kind of plausible like they're not you know, they're yeah. using biomedical scientific knowledge to to justify an anti-vaccination position or that you can palpate the pituitary gland, that at first glance they seem plausible, like any good kind of conspiracy theory. It seems like, oh, I guess it could be the case. and But these are really just myths or over-interpretations of the science or just kind of using the science to just reach too far or to just misunderstand the science in the first place. And I think I see that with anti-vax, and I don't know the science behind vaccination. I don't proclaim to. But what's always apparent on social media discussions around these, and I think even outside social media, there are people that would claim to that they understand the science. I mean, I've got colleagues that are now adopting this sort of position and proclaiming to me that they've read they've read the literature. I mean, they've read the literature on science on vaccination and they've come to their own mind that actually it's not the right thing for their family or their or their patients and i'll be honest i haven't read the literature <laughs> I, I i just haven't i've outsourced that task to someone else to institutions to have expertise to have expertise i mean I, yes I, and i'm in research you know and i can i can read a, a meta-analysis and systematic reviews as well as the next person but i still wouldn't have confidence in me using that to make decisions myself about whether i or my family or my patient should be vaccinated and i find this i guess it's an is it an arrogance an arrogance that, that people who are essentially unskilled in this field are able to to make claims that they've read the literature and to them that the evidence just doesn't stack up in supporting the use of vaccinations it's difficult because people should be reading. You want people to, to inform themselves, right? They should. You know, we should all take an interest and, and, and be much more informed about our care. I, I think there's a difference here. So if you were, you know, as scientists, we've done this before. If, you, if you're starting out a systematic review, you ask a question. And what you try to do, you obviously ask that question and then you go to search for the literature with all of your biases that, that we all have and that most of us can't avoid. Uh, but there's a methodology and a mindset 
maybe not a mindset, but certainly a methodology that mm. allows you to minimize as, as much as you can some of those biases through the method that you use. There's also a bit of a mindset if you can manage that, although clearly we all go in with our biases around these questions, otherwise we wouldn't ask them in the first place. But there is also a, a, a mindset that goes in with a sort of relatively open view about what the answer might be. The difference with these guys is that I think they're coming into these areas of what they feel are issues that they disagree mm -hmm. with already from a position where they're assuming that the world is hoodwinking them. So, so they're already looking for a conspiracy. They're already suspicious and doubtful of, mm -hmm. of what they're reading. You know, they're not going to give the benefit of the doubt to these areas because they already don't like them. They're suspicious of them. They don't agree with them. They don't, it doesn't match up to what they would do. There are all sorts of complicated other filigrees that can be woven in around this, which are, mm. you know, the idea of it's not natural. It's, you know, we should go back to nature. That, you know, these things are man-made. They're foreign, you know, and, and, and all these are the arrogance of scientific endeavor. Well, indeed, no, not, notwithstanding, of course, that, uh, you know, lots and lots of natural things are really highly, highly poisonous and, and, and not good for you at all. But they seem to miss this sort of thing. So they're coming from that in the, in the first point of view. Then I think what they do is they go to look at literature that confirms their bias. Uh, there's, not, there's not this openness to what the answer mm. might be. And, and then the literature is not particularly well done. And even if they can, you know, how much immunology do our chiropractic and osteopathy students get? Uh, you know, I did a whole two years of immunology embedded in my degree, not to say I'm, I'm not an immunologist, but I know, certainly know what a lot of the words mean and certainly the concepts. But they, none of these, you know, some of these guys have none of it. Some of them do, but very, very few. Mm. So you're already sort of loaded right from the beginning, you know, as these sorts of people. Um, and as I say, you know, they're, they're often on the traditionalist part of the profession, so they don't like medicine in the first place. This is big pharma. It's money. We're being hoodwinked. It's a conspiracy. And then then you're off, you know. And the next thing you are yeah. is saying that, you know, what was that, that doctor in the, on hydroxychloroquine just said? There's a whole bunch of things that Trump's now tweeting about this doctor who said that unless her videos are put back up on Facebook, that Jesus is going to destroy the servers. Yeah, they, they were they were claiming that yeah you're right they were using alien DNA I think in in alien DNA in vaccines yeah so you know and and we all and most people look at that and think well that's just you know bonkers that's batshit crazy you know that, that that's just just bonkers but you can see you know further mm. back from that extreme mm. that trajectory in the road that leads to that and uh, and so. You know, and then we get into social media. I know that we're going to talk about social media. And of course, that there's a mechanism there that just uber polarizes everything. And it's I mean, it's just that I don't know if it's a slippery slope or it's a gray area. I can use a range of kind of metaphors or analogies here. But from that healthy skepticism, which science and research really promotes, and as you said, that cynicism or that suspicion, you know, I'm being done over here. And I'm not quite sure where the boundaries no, lie with no, that. Difficult. Well, the other thing, now coming onto social media, and I had a bit of a ding dong on Facebook about masks, you know, anti-mask, anti-position. Yeah, yeah. And the poster put up that you know was kind of questioning whether or not masks were going to have some ad wearing masks will have some adverse effects on all of us in terms of 
CO2 and fear avoidance, or a whole kind of based on um, a rat study 20 years ago, something like that. And I kind of shut this person down and said, this, this is unhelpful. And the reaction for some of the people in the forum was, why can't we just ask a question? You know, it was perfectly fine to, to raise these topics and to kind of critically evaluate, you know, I guess, common assumptions, if you like, e.g. wearing masks. And I kind of found myself in a, in a sticky position. But what, of course, I don't want to shut down any discussion. But discussion's got to be based on plausible evidence-based question you it's got to start from a position of sense rather than a starting from a position of kind of yeah. actually crazy yeah. it seems that if the question or discussion is flawed from the moment it's posed then that that's not a discussion necessarily worth having whereas if a question or a dis, or a discussion is really based on a sensible understanding of reality then it's worth having i think yeah, I mean, there's this thing about, you know, scientific questions and non-scientific questions, you know, there's some, you know, is there a God is not really a scientific question, because it doesn't beg either a method or, or so forth. It doesn't, you know, what are the outcomes, you know, what, so on and so forth. So, yeah, and I think you've got to, you've got to have a sort of question. The, the mask thing is, again, I think that these issues, you know, whether you're a chiropractor or an osteopath, if you're on that end of that spectrum, and you know, and I'm not going to put a boundary between that, and we'll talk about boundaries in a moment, actually, because that's an interesting area. But if you're on that part of the spectrum, then you're already in that. I'm sure that I'm being done over. So, so you already got that suspicion of well, these, you know, mm-hmm. why are we being told to wear masks? You know, actually, the evidence around masks in terms of of various degrees of prevention is somewhat equivocal, I suspect, you know, um, you know, it's, we, we don't know exactly clearly self-evidently, you know, sneezing or coughing over somebody without a mask on is likely to produce more droplets than if you had a mask on, but what's the transmission rate there and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, a, a sticky sort of issue, but you know, for me, I've got a lot of friends in the States and, you know, so I've, I've got a lot of conversation that comes from there. And there it's become a, a, a sort of individual right issue, which, again, seems yeah. to be this idea of so, – so for me, again, it's all about spectrums as far as I'm concerned. The whole world is on, on some variable spectrum somewhere <laughs> here. And you can imagine that you know, there's a sort of society where only the individual matters. You, know, you immediately can see that those societies are going to be tricky. And they're not going to last very long. And then you've got the societies where you you have some system where the individuals don't matter whatsoever, and only the group matters. And clearly, you know, all politics mm-hmm. is somewhere in the middle between those two. And um, and so the mask wearing issue, certainly in the U.S., has become about this individual right stuff. And you know, mm-hmm. one of some of the arguments that I've got into around this and vaccination being another one is. Uh, you know, with with the COVID one, when, when we, when there's been some discussions around around, I've commented on some people's who put up a comment like, "Well, when the COVID vaccine comes along, I won't be having one because it doesn't fit in with you know I've taken my own personal decision." And you know, it somewhat annoys me because it's a sort of very selfish position in some ways. I understand mm-hmm. that you have the right to do that, but this is not just about you. Now, then how you square those individual choices with choices about how you're going to impact your wider group. And we know through herd immunity and so on and so forth, you might do that. 
then that 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 is a tricky one but it's not but again i think it comes down to that spectrum of you know you're either on this very individual end or you're on this you know i've got responsibility to the group and somewhere in the middle is where most people sort of sit so here's an interesting one about conspiracy theories so we all know you and me know having looked at ontology and epistemology which you know for our listeners you know epistemology is how do you answer questions about the world? And ontology is, a, you know, questions like, is there a world? And, you know, and so on. So we sort of already know that it's difficult to anchor anything where you're absolutely sure of a truth. So if you imagine this sort of landscape where people have these different ideas, I, as an individual, find the idea of vaccines being injected and having microchips in them because Gates wants to control us all as being, you know, completely bonkers uh, and a level of, of paranoia about our control that is just outside of my comfort zone like by a long chalk. On the other hand, I do know, and, and I'm pretty convinced that the economic landscape is not level and, and that there, in fact, there are very strong forces, either at corporate level or certainly within politics or a combination of the two that talk to each other around that and other forces that persist or or maintain that very unlevel landscape. And I think I've got some justification to feel that that those systems are not fair and that somebody out there is not playing this game fairly. And yet I would have, you know, I don't buy into the fact that Gates is injecting microchips. But if you think about it, where is our own truth? You know, I feel convinced about mine. They can feel convinced about that. Why do we feel like those arguments are fair? And and I would say, and this sounds a bit arrogant, I suppose, but I would say that I read and interpreted the knowledge from sources that I think are trustworthy to varying degrees that I feel give me a viewpoint about where I can consider the truth might be in these issues and the truth may or may not be in these issues. And I don't see that in other people. But in in the end, I don't actually know that my anchor is any any really, uh, you know, Mm. people could say that my anchor is no more truthful than theirs, but I don't think that's true. But it is a very interesting issue. Clearly, there are are truths, aren't there? Um, You know, we, we, we know that, we know that if you jump out the window, you're going to fall. So there are some truths around gravity, which are, you know, this attractive force to large bodies. And we know quite a lot of the science around that. The details we still don't know. It's 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 interaction with quantum theory and, and the small things. We don't really know how that works. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there are some true things in the world. And I would say that, you know, ontologically, mm-hmm. there is a world in which within which we yeah. code goes on without us. So there are some true things there. The... The truth about, I see, so I'm arguing myself now to a position where I'm beginning to sort of think, oh, they may have a point, um, but maybe not. But <laughs> it is very difficult to get a handle on on where the truth is. For, for me, if you're looking at vaccination, the economic arguments of vaccinating people with safe vaccines that are efficacious make complete sense to me, even if people are being conspiratorial or selfish. If you want to make if you're in this business in a society to have economic impact and accrue huge amounts of money, you don't want that society to be you know, overrun by lethal viruses. 
um, because you know your your empire is going yeah. down the toilet pretty quickly, as we're seeing right now. So when yeah. it comes to things like that, my default situation is, well, I can see that you were saying that people would do this and they could do this and it plausibly could be that, but why would they want to? What's the upside to some of this stuff? And, and I think that sometimes, that's the way that I would pass, if you like, the difference between, I can see that there are very definite, clear benefits tipping the economic landscape so that, so that lots of people in society are disenfranchised to some extent within the law. But I can't see really that making vaccines that are harmful to people and then people like the WHO and the CDC and lots of other people full of scientists like you and me who are generally not malevolent people, why would you be, you know, why would they be doing that? It makes absolutely no sense. So I think there's this sort of mm. commonsensical aspect that, that tends to, and that's why I don't really understand why mm. these other people who say this stuff really don't get that. It, you know, it's just such a complex area, you know, the actual science of it. And as we were saying before about social media, it's about shutting down arguments that if someone poses a question on social media, you know, vaccinations are harmful, for example, should we really vaccinate all that kind of stuff? And then it's then shut down or argued kind of robustly. That's then shutting down conversation. And I suppose it's just trying to understand when is shutting down debate when is it okay to shut down debate? Well, you know, from a questioning point of view, I think you're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's questioning is how we got here yeah. as a race, as, as, as a species. Um, whether that's a good place to be or not right now, I don't really know. But uh, we, we're certainly, you know, not living in caves and, and, and dying at 24 necessarily en masse. You know, so, so the questions are fine, I think, to ask. But as a scientist or, or as a, anybody that, that might be persuadable by evidence, when you're given the evidence and, and you understand the methodology or somebody helps you understand the methodology and, you can, and it stacks up, eventually you would say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I didn't know that existed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah I, hadn't, I hadn't seen that paper before. That doesn't happen. Mm. So this is not, you know, and, and in fact, there's research now that suggests that that approach to trying to change these sorts of ideas in people's minds is actually the wrong approach. Yeah. You know, given more and more evidence doesn't actually, it actually yeah. polarizes yeah. the situation yeah. even more. So, and that's what frustrates me, I guess, and, and why I'm not perhaps very good at this, because as a scientist, for me, my default position is evidence. And so therefore, you know, I sort of run out of things to say or, or approaches to make mm -hmm. when I'm confronted with evidence being rejected again and again and again and again, even though you post this stuff up and try to explain why it is probably nearer the truth and where they're coming from, because uh, that's what science can do. Mm. And that's where we go full circle around that discussion we had where these are ideas that are emotionally attached and charged ideas. These are not, I mean, we're, all, we're all emotionally charged, absolutely, me more than anybody else. You know, it's not just about intellectual persuasion at that point, whereas, you know, mm. if somebody if somebody showed to me you know, there was a definitive set of studies done that showed that there were there were no contextual effects whatsoever in final manipulative therapy encounters and that you know, nothing to do with what you were saying. And it was all down to the adjustment. And, and that was unequivocal. And it was done over a long time period. It would really hurt me. 
but I would, I think I would start to shift as the evidence, because uh, I would be thinking, mm. well, that's really interesting. So what is going on here? Mm. And, uh, but I don't see that. And I think that's where the conundrum mm. comes in trying to, to address these issues in these groups. Do you have any, what's your current experience with, I guess, on social media in terms of vaccinations or COVID vaccines? Have you, you gave an example of, of someone on social media that said, I'm, no, I'm not going to give the vaccine or take the vaccine. Have you, have you managed to get a, a, a taster of where the profession's yeah. heading or is there much discourse in there? There, there is. So, so we have not only had individuals and there, there are the, these individuals, you, you know, uh, I've got to be fair here. There are lots of individuals in the profession that have understandable reservations about this stuff and, and that probably, yeah. you know, would be persuaded by the evidence, but may still feel that, you know, they don't want to take the risk with their kids. I completely get that, completely get that. And that is entirely your decision. So there are those people there. But I think, you know, on the more extreme versions of it, there, there are a small number of chiropractors that are evangelical in their um, support of anti-vaccination movement and so mm -hmm. they're actively involved. What's more worrying is that we've got some of our international associations that are actively involved in that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. we have, for example, just recently published with a, a bunch of, I think there were around over, I think there's probably now 60, 60 odd different signatories to a paper that was published in one of our main journals, debunking claims that were coming out from this part of the profession and in fact not only individuals but those organizations that were saying that you know they were alluding to the idea that adjustments probably could affect the immune system mm. in in such a way as to protect from covid of which there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever mm. and so there was a the, the whole scientific community stood up and published this paper to debunk that and so so we we have a very public spat in the actual mm. literature now around this issue. And of course, the anti-vax side are not publishing in the peer-reviewed journals, they're publishing in their mm -hmm. own sort of journals and stuff, which is not necessarily peer-reviewed. But yeah, oh, absolutely. Is it a huge issue? It's a huge issue in the amount of noise, in the, in the, amount, of, in the, in the amount of heat that it creates, but it's, mm -hmm. it doesn't, it's, not, it's not illuminating the amount of light. Um, and, and, so it, mm -hmm. and, and it's a relatively small group that are generating lots of noise. So, but it, but it yeah. is a huge issue in the sense that it's loud. Yeah, and I, I think my experience from osteopathy is that it's not, it doesn't appear to be a, a major issue, at least over here in the UK. I think a few stories have been picked up by the media, which have been unhelpful by various groups and institutions promoting anti-vaccination more generally, or at least expressing information which is with anti-vax sentiment. But I suppose that there's professional damage which has been done. Yeah. But I also imagine that there are some members of the public which should be encouraged by the fact that osteopathy or parts of osteopathy hold anti-vaccination type views, and you might be more likely to go. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what, what the what the position of the general public is. But certainly, when I when when it, when a story comes out, and there's been a few, but not a huge number, when osteopaths, individuals, or, or small professional groups have expressed such views and been picked up by the mainstream media that often is a bit of a heart sink moment because invariably the piece is osteopathy is anti-vaccination yeah. or at least that's maybe what the, the reader yeah. might hear yeah. and that's not helpful for anyone's yeah. professional development no uh, and, and and i think that's always been my argument I, I think that you know i think way back in the day five years when i when i stumbled into facebook 
by having the temerity to stand up to somebody at one point in in a sort of flurry of innocence about what would happen mm. five years ago, and then everything sort of took off from that point that point onwards really. But I think I had the temerity to say, well, you know, if you have those views, just just you know, go into a room and keep quiet about them, because you know you're not you maybe not going to. I'm not sure that's the right way forward now, and and most people, a lot of people got very upset about that, but. But it's very damaging. It's very damaging, and it, and it has a reputational damage. It undermines the legitimacy, and and then the problem is you get some people saying, "Well, yeah, so what have we got to do? We've just got to suck up to to medicine. We've just got to cowtail to and toe the line, in order to have our legitimacy." Well, no, this is evident. If it's evidential, this is not towing the line. This is just gravitating towards where the evidence is and the mainstream. Mainstream does not mean against you it's mainstream for that reason because it's got evidence around it yeah but that's an old fight that's an old battle i mean osteopathy and chiropractic developed at times in opposition if you like due to the perceived weaknesses of medicine you know they pretty much thought individual palmer or still thought yeah that's not working or we can do it better than yeah. that and, and and like you said invariably medicine you know was potentially more harmful than it was good um in its interventions yeah. And why not? You know, a bit of manual therapy isn't going to kill you, whereas mercury or yeah. arsenic might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it seems like that whilst the theories have been inherited, these stories, also those grudges have also been passed down where there's this anything which are promoted by medicine or the scientific community is also begrudged. Yeah. So that battle just continues. It's like a, it's a, in, in another lifetime. It's an existential battle as far as some people are concerned. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the carpet profession suffered, you know, a lot of very brutal and unfair cultural treatment for medicine, and certainly in America where it was fermented. And um, so there, there is a grudge there, I think. And, uh, you know, it, it is perpetuated. The thing about grudges, one, I think mm. I forget who said it now, but somebody once said that a grudge is a poison that you make for somebody else and then drink it yourself. <laughs> Um, and you know, it does nothing but harm you. But I think if we had a legitimate position within the landscape of healthcare, where you know the other professions acknowledged a key, relatively unique role that was evidentially based, that was recognized to be delivered by a set of skills that were highly attained and were was somewhat different to a set of skills in, in other. I think that, you know, the profession would probably just stop fighting again. I think a lot of this is about, it's, it's not like, it's not, I don't, you know, some people do want to destroy medicine, but I think most people, and certainly the younger generations, they want to belong. They mm. want to belong and they want to feel that other professionals that they respect, respect them and their skills and, and their approaches to patients. And uh, and I would say that the vast majority of the professions, certainly more and more the younger generations coming out, are moving in that direction. And the, the issue of identity is a tricky one because mm. I think, you know, as we alluded to at the beginning, how we different. I mean, I, you know, this is heretical, isn't it? But I think I don't think there's a lot of difference except through the explanatory frameworks so between mm. osteopathy and chiropractic. There's something about the high-velocity you know, might be different in terms of the adjustments and who knows and the way you do that. You know, I think I think the professions are very similar, but mm. it's a bit like 
it's a bit like a family heirloom, you know. You've you've both got a family heirloom, and it, and it's it both happens to be a, a china cup in a cabinet. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, in the end, it's just a it's the same. You know, it's the same article. It's a china mm-hmm. cup in a cabinet, and um, and yet everybody's got all these emotional historical buy-ins to mm-hmm. you know how precious this thing is, and what's precious is the ability to be able to help people get back on their feet and mm-hmm. engage with their lives. And I think, you know, all good healthcare practitioners do that. And, and the ones within all of our professions, including osteopathy and chiropractic, the good ones, and most of them mm-hmm. do that. And, and I think that's where we need to start to think about where our identity might lie. Yeah. Articulating something around that, not, not just, you know, a single modality. And I completely agree. But the challenge with that is that once that's your starting position, then your next step is, well, what's the best way to achieve that? What's the best way to get people engaged with their lives and all that kind of stuff? And you draw upon the evidence, for example, to, to, to navigate to that point. But then you're left with something which largely looks like, what I don't know, mosquito physiotherapy or manual therapy, I'm not quite sure what it is. But you'd then say, well, how much room do we have for that? chiropractic philosophy lecture you know do we need that or osteopathic kind of principles lecture and where did and this is the the conundrum for educators that they had to construct these curricula you know what place does does that professional philosophy have what role does it have given that it's largely devoid of evidence it's largely historical it sometimes gets in the way of good practice or good or better theories. And that that's the holy grail that you can teach these things to give some sense of identity, which we know is valuable. We know that clinicians that have a, a reasonably strong sense of self and professional identity have high levels of fulfillment and perhaps more likely to adhere to professional guidance and, and things like that. So you want people to feel fulfilled, but you don't want them to take on views or positions which do become just barriers to taking on more effective or safer interventions or ideas and that's the tension and one would say that some of the theories in both our respective professions just block out uh, more contemporary evidence-based practices or or views no no you're right Uh, yeah i think i think in terms of the philosophy i mean i don't i don't think either of our professions have a unique philosophy i think philosophy is philosophy these these are they're, they're historical explanatory frameworks. That's what they are. They're not really philosophies. So, and I think Justin, as you would explain, historically explanatory frameworks of the miasma theory as historical, you would do the same within these. These are essentially historical mm. elements. They're not there to inform modern day practice, I would have thought. But the problem is, is that what then does inform modern day practice? And you know, I, the history of medicine is not a big part of the curriculum in medicine, for sure. But I think the reason for that is because they already have huge cultural authority. Yeah. So that, you know, they're not struggling on the fringes trying to make their voice heard. And I think that we default to these philosophical positions because somehow we feel that's our strongest voice. Yeah. Whereas I think we can, you know, I would say, so So here's the thing, and this is, that you know about this is my pet subject, but with some of these functional problems conditions that particularly around pain and actually ironically i think you could you could put fms and chronic fatigue syndrome and and even ibs in here which is odd because if you expand the definition of what the profession is you could expand the scope of practice but anyway 
I, I think that so so with these types of conditions, what you need is a richly contextual encounter, and that that contextual encounter has to be, you know, talking to the patient about where they're coming from, recognizing mm. their beliefs, being somehow congruent with those that you can, having touch and empathy and modulating expectation to as much of the right degree that you can in a positive sense around these things, all of these things, and 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 using the manual therapy as part of touch and and the stories that you tell about that around unsticking movement and increased range of motion and so on and so forth, they're perfectly fine. I mean, I think there's huge amounts of evidence that's happening, but it's relatively plausible. It's not, you know, getting rid of subluxations to allow you know, intelligence to flow from God, which is completely out of the window. But, you know, I, so you can use all of those things. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of those elements require lots of education and, and deep skill to be able to not only know the theoretical back- backgrounds of these, but also to to construct them in an individual encounter for, for a patient. And I think, you know, so we could be you know, those manual therapeutic orientated, you know, richly contextual encounters. And, and 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 I think you could start to construct an identity around that because I think, you know, surgeons wouldn't be like that. That's not what they do. I mean, they do some of those elements, but they don't bring that network mm. together into an encounter. And so I, I think it's almost like you, you know, so we're we're sort of encounter experts. You know, and uh, and uh, you know, I think if you could try, if you could start to, and I don't, there is a way forward there, but if you could try to articulate, start to articulate that, yeah. I think there may be a form of words, a single paragraph even, where everybody go, wow, that sounds, mm-hmm. that sounds like a really cool guy to be. Um, you know, I want to, I want to have those skills. That, that of course presupposes that osteopaths and chiropractors are those guys already, <laughs> and they're already doing those things well. Because uh, I think what you described then is is idealistic. Of course, you know, that sounds like the perfect clinician, right? That that can juggle communication, relational, technical skills in a in an individualized therapeutic sense, therapeutic way. If you look at the skill set across, you know, both our professions, they are largely residing in technical skills, and they accidentally are good communicators, or perhaps they're not. Well, they're implicit, yeah. So, so I would say yeah. that what we what we the difference would be is not to suddenly change what chiropractors are doing or osteopaths are doing, because I think you're absolutely right. Most of them are already those. But what we need to do is to accept that that is the description of what is going on. Mm-hmm. And we need yeah. to describe it as our identity. It's almost like, it's almost like well, if you ask you know, a, a whole community about Bob the driver that brings the logs round, that community of several hundred people might have, you know, incredibly interwoven viewpoints of how what Bob's impact is on the community and their particular whatever. But when you ask Bobby, he insists that he's just a van driver. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not true. Um, and so let's try and figure out a, a, a <laughs> correct interpretation and articulation of what Bob's actually yeah. doing. And then you can begin to once you have a, a grasp on that reality, if you like. Then you can begin to build on it, change it, say, so, you know, become more think, expert at yeah, it, research it. Yeah, exactly. It. But I think if you're certainly, if you're currently kind of grappling with the words of God permeating through your L4, then it's challenging to move anywhere meaningful from from that point. 
Yeah, I agree. You, you, that you're, you're, you're really painting yourself into a professional corner, and, and unfairly so when, when you've got a very, when you actually roam about the room, when somebody says, you know, what do you do? Why do you then paint yourself into a tiny corner and, and push yourself up against the wall, where in fact every day you wander this big room? Dave, I'm conscious of time. We're ticking up to an hour and a half, and the weather's nice and sunny outside. And you're in Bournemouth. I'm in Bournemouth. Yeah, and it is it's just incredible down here. I bet. So you need to get out and enjoy that. I just want to say thank you so much. This has been better than Sam Harris. <laughs> That's not, luckily, it's just in this very small group that we can say that, but clearly it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Sam's listening. Um, but thank you so much. And, and I will, in the show notes, I'll link some of your recent papers and some of your work on contextual factor, which I know that you've done. Yeah. So just, just on that thing, we've, we've got a couple of PhD students, um, actually three PhD students that are, that are doing some stuff around problems and context, contextual factors and, and, and that sort of stuff. And that they're, they're sort of at various parts through their thing. Yeah. So we, we've yet to start to really publish considerable data on this sort of stuff. So uh, hopefully that will start to come out because at the moment I'm just, um, it's just me, me being gobby without much much evidence around it. So um, uh, so I apologise for that. But uh, the evidence is coming at some point. <laughs> One way or the other, we'll show it. Perfect. Dave, thanks so much. All right. Yeah, no, well, thank you. I mean, it's just amazing. Right? It just, you just gave me one and a half hours to, to do my favourite thing, which is talk. <laughs> and just to finish, I guess, both of us would say that, you know, I mean, I, you and I have, 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 have certainly immensely proud to be part of these professions you know because yeah. most of the most of the clinicians we know and and certainly the uh, whether it be academics politicians or or clinicians and, and students are an amazing bunch of people and and sure. it's 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 just a shame that we're still struggling with with both these identity issues and these legitimacy issues because i think it's um it is unfair and uh, and and i think there is a place for 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 both yeah. of our professions more providing care um in the mainstream with with the other professions in concert with them so yeah totally proud to be part of the carpet profession yeah this whole conversation has come from a position of wanting to to enhance and develop and are passionate about you know high quality patient care and whether that's osteo chiro or whatever the hell we end up being called in how many decades time it's a, a position of and wanting to do good rather than to to denigrate or to to slag off any you know any any particular corners of, of either yeah. our professions. Cool. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs, and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.